Hello, friends, and welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories from designers, builders, and building artisans. History informs the future, and so do our guests. I'm your host, Peter Miller. I'm speaking today with Wendy Hillis from the University of California, Berkeley campus, where she provides over the building and renovation of campus buildings. Before that, Wendy was at Tulane University, and she's an important member of the AIA's Historic Resources Committee, which is 6,000 architects who do historic architecture, preservation architecture. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you. We're talking today about what architects should know about substitute materials. Um, I have some questions for Wendy. First, tell me a little bit about the important work you're doing on your campus. Yeah, um, we're, we have, so we're about 178 acre campus in downtown Berkeley. Um, little less than 200 buildings, 40,000 students. Um, number one public university in the world. I keep saying the United States and then somebody corrects me. They're like, the world. I'm like, yes, the world. Um, and we have about $3.2 billion worth of work in design and construction right now. So um, a real push for building, um, both new and renovation. So, you know, our campus um, founding dates to the 1860s. Um, the earliest buildings that are still on campus, the master plan was completed in 1905. So we have a lot of classical buildings um, and kind of a historic core of campus that is from the early 20th century with work by very well-known famous architects like Bernard Maybeck and Julia Morgan. Um, so it is, you know, a campus that is rich in history, um, also that keeps growing. So we have to continue to build and change. Um, and that's what I love about it is um, really trying to design in context of the historic um, piece of the campus. Because there's so many people who love the campus and are interested in it and um, have an identity with it. So I would hear if um, we really messed it up. I didn't realize you had Bernard Maybeck buildings on your campus. I yeah. know he's done a lot at the Principia College campus, which we published in traditional building. Yeah. So he um, he was one of the early predecessors for the architecture school there. Um, but he did the faculty club and um, was really kind of key in getting Phoebe Apperson Hearst to donate the money for the international competition um, in 1899 for the first campus plan. Um, that was really his brainchild and he sold it to her, which is great. Interesting. Let me let me set up the conversation about substitute materials. The National Park Service preservation briefs are addressing the topic of substitute materials, uh, some of which weren't approved before now for federal historic tax credit work. Preservation brief number eight covers aluminum and vinyl exterior, for example. Preservation brief number 16 discusses the use of substitute materials on historic buildings. We're sitting in Da Vinci Roofscape's booth today at the American Institute of Architects annual conference. They make a polymer composite material substituting for slate and cedar shake roofing. Here's the question, Wendy, as a preservation architect, what's your position on substitute materials and what should other architects and contractors and building owners know? 
Well, I think the gold standard in preservation is always that you're replacing in kind, right? But there are lots of times when you can't do that, um, perhaps because of changes in the building code, availability of products. Um, you know, I'm in a high fire zone that can change what we need to do. Um, so we and then always budget or so we do evaluate substitute materials often, um, I would say, um, you know, and in general, there is a question about how much they match the original in terms of appearance. Definitely more flexible from my perspective about replacement materials when they are above the first floor, when they're in a place that you can't touch or see them like you can at the at the entrance level of a building. I think that's very different. Is there existing historic material that is going to remain that this needs to match? I think that's one of the big questions. Um, you know, how closely it might match something that's remaining. So I think it's a rich discussion um, and certainly one that I grapple with often. Maybe the best case for substitute materials is the incidence of major storms and floods and forest fires that we've been experiencing. I know Hurricane Sandy in particular hit coastal historic places really hard. Before that, Hurricane Katrina in your mm -hmm. old town, New Orleans, in California, where we are today, fires are of important concern. Can substitute materials be part of the solution for, well, fires and, and floods? Absolutely. I can speak to, um, I can, well, I'll speak to both. You know, in terms of flooding, I think flooding is both about preventing the water from perhaps rising, but then also if it is going to rise and flood, what does that look like in terms of materials that are going to be affected by water? Um, and, you know, there's a rich discussion there um, about, about what might be good um, for flooding. In terms of California, where I deal with, um, I deal with both earthquakes and fires, most definitely, um, you know, some of the buildings that we have high in our in, in our highest fire zone part of campus are these vernacular kind of wood buildings that kind of fit into the forest, um, which are charming, but are also just tinder <laughs> um, for, you know, whatever's going to happen. So, you know, various treatments, um, you know, can be looked at to fireproof. And I think, you know, some of the shakes that are offered here um, by Da Vinci absolutely fall into, you know, that category around how to create how to how to have something that has a little a little less flammability to it there was a huge forest fire in the east bay of, of oakland area up in the hills when, when was that was that? in the did, 90s did that come close to berkeley campus it, um not particular i mean not too far but not particularly close i'm reminded that you know when you look at the big fires in the hills that um we haven't had one in the area adjacent to campus in about a hundred years and that we're, we might be due for one. People keep telling me this. I'm knocking um, on wood. I'm knocking on wood. But, you know, it's the, the fire danger in California is a big thing. You probably heard that, you know, insurance policies are no longer being written by all state and state farm in California. And certainly folks who have the houses up in those high fire zones, um, you know, have been feeling that even previously in terms of there's just a lot of risk. What about a university campus? Can you get insurance for a university campus? We have insurance. We have different regulations that have come out from the state fire marshal, particularly around landscaping in our high fire zone areas, which is super interesting because it prevents trees and shrubs within about 30 feet of the building. So I'm trying to work through how we're going to have all these denuded landscapes around historic buildings up on the east side of campus, which is another preservation discussion. Well, let's go back to appearance and historic authenticity, does that trump all your other considerations when specifying 
uh, a substitute material? It does. And the reason it does is um, we are required to meet the Secretary of the Interior standards um, for any buildings on our campus that are listed on or eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. And this has to do with the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, which is how we entitle our projects directly under CEQA. Um, we don't go to the city for a permit. And we have an EIR that gets done, an environmental impact report that gets done, you know, every 20 to 30 years for the campus. And, you know, one of the mitigation measures in that with regards to historic structures is that we will meet the standards. So, you know, they do kind of, they do dictate what we're doing for that, those so buildings. So Park Service has involvement with college campuses. I was always thought it well, was a commercial. I know. wouldn't say that they have involvement because we don't report to them, but we have to certify. I mean, we kind of regulate ourselves and we have to be honest um, for a variety of reasons. But um, the baseline is that we need to meet we need, we need to meet the Secretary of the Interior standards. So really, you know, we hire a preservation architect that would review kind of a project and give us a letter that says, you know, you meet the standards because of this and that reason. It doesn't go to the Park Service. It's just an internal memo. Are there any ingredients in substitute or composite materials that you should look out for or um, good or bad? Not necessarily. I think it really depends on what the use is. And, um, you know, in metals, for instance, you're always going to be concerned about, um, you know, interaction between two different metals and how they might cause each other to corrode. Um, you know, I think looking at each, looking at each instance individually, um, you know, one of the big questions we're going to have around substitute materials, in addition to, um, you know, cost, which is often why we might go with substitute materials and they might be cheaper, is how they're going to wear and weather um, and what they're going to look like and how they might degrade. Um, and those start to become really important questions, especially around plastic or polymer materials when they're exposed to the sun historically. You know, questions about that. What is this going to look like 30 years on? Because we don't have a great maintenance budgets. So when we're building something, we're expecting it to be there for 50 to 100 years with very little attention. Um, and this is where substitute materials can be great sometimes because they can solve weathering problems for us. They can also create weathering problems for us. So I think just being, you know, aware of that when we're looking at it. Now, our host, Da Vinci Roofscapes, has uh, both slate lookalike and cedar shake lookalike on a variety of building types. Can you think of any building types that are more appropriate for for substitute than others? Um, certainly, you know, you mentioned the high fire. Um, the places where just because of cost, you know, you look at slate and cost and quarrying, you look at um, shing slate uh, shakes and, and shingles and just the flammability of that. So I think, you know, those answer two of the big questions. You know, one of the challenges as we look at roofs is this push to um, put solar charging on roofs and particularly on historic roofs. Um, so I have a lot of pitched roofs on campus that actually have clay tiles. Um, you know, we can't put solar panels on these roofs. First of all, they'd be very visible, but you know, also it just wouldn't work to attach those um, to that kind of roof structure. I do think we will be in the future looking at a lot of substitute materials when you could do the solar PV charging that is in the actual roof tile. I think that is where we're gonna see a lot of these questions around um, substitute materials. And you know, this is offering kind of a capability that the historic material wouldn't offer and kind of meets our sustainability guidelines. I, I foresee a lot of conversations around that.
I have a funny story about solar panels. I was interviewing Stephen Ayers, formerly the architect of the U.S. Capitol. Mm -hmm. He presides over something like 60 buildings in that complex. And he said back in 2009, when we were trying to develop a green economy, a congressman from your state, California, came to him and said, we should be putting solar panels on the U.S. Capitol dome. No. <laughs> he had to say it a little more politically politely than you just did, but yeah. that was the answer. Well, I mean, think back to, you know, Jimmy Carter, I think, put the first solar panels at the White House. Um, and, you know, so I think there is a statement that can be made about, you know, having solar panels and making them visible. I do not see them going on the U.S. Capitol Dome. Well, the White House roof is flat and the dome, yeah. of course, is is iconic. So in, in addition to providing you material, is there any advice you can give to the suppliers of substitute materials about the, the kinds of services that an architect finds useful? Oh, boy. I am so far removed from practice and design at this point in time, which is part of what I love about my job. I just get to look at things that people design and say yes or no. Um, but, you know, in terms of us evaluating products, you know, it is so many of the conversations I have are about the life cycle and what things look like over time. So I think having that really good data and testing and photos um, to share um, are incredibly important. Um, you know, the other levels of support, you know, I've always found that, you know, manufacturers, it, it, it's making friends with, manu with manufacturers and really getting their details and understanding their product that makes design and detailing so easy. So I've never had an issue with that. Um, from the owner side, I'm always looking about that long-term life cycle issue. So you're the building owner facilities manager with licensed architecture mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley. Yeah, so I'm the assistant vice chancellor and campus architect. Um, so I am over real estate design, construction, planning, and entitlement. You have, you have to raise money for these buildings too, don't you? Well, I don't personally have to raise money for them. There are people who do that. And I'm in, sometimes they let me have conversations with donors. Um, but, you know, out of the $3.2 billion that we're doing right now, only about $500 million of that is state funding. Um, the rest is all donor funds that has been fundraised by our development I've talked to other campus architects who say that the alumni like to give money for architecture that is of its contextual with the historic campus. Yeah. I think you told me that, yeah, but it's hard to put your name, a donor name on an existing building. So yeah. where does that come down at Berkeley? Yeah. So um, I would I would amend that to say that fundamentally donors are interested in the program that is inside a building usually. How is the program, the research going to change the world? That is what they are interested in. Now the building needs to support that. You do get some donors who are interested in architecture and are, you know, really want to have a hand in what that design looks like. There is this pro there is this challenge around historic buildings and as much as a lot of times they have a name associated with them, a donor isn't going to put their name on that. And, you know, part of it it's going to be very hard to raise money for just a historic building because you want to renovate it. I think University of Virginia has been the most successful with this, with their um, with their Jeffersonian grounds initiative. But you know, not everybody has not anybody has a you know world landmark status that they can promote for their buildings. There, there, there is this challenge around fundraising for existing buildings, and so many times it is around what is the exciting program that we are putting into this building um, that is making it something new and interesting, and there's an institute or, or something important going on inside. 
nice shout out to your alma mater, University yes. of Virginia. Um, thank you, Wendy. This has been insightful. Uh, and thanks to our audience at the American Institute of Architects annual convention in San Francisco. Have a good day. Thank you. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.